This is Sheer Sports. Welcome to the second part of the third episode of Sheer Sports. I'm your host, Matt Shear. I'll now turn our attention to the Tampa Bay Rays and their World Series run, coming up two games short to the Los Angeles Dodgers for the 2020 season, along with a special guest. Our guest for today has served as one half of the Tampa Bay Rays radio broadcast team since 2005, covering the Rays' recent World Series run in 2020. I'd like to welcome Dave Wills to the show on Sheer Sports. Dave, what a crazy season this year has been with the pandemic, rule changes, uh, shortened season, and on top of all of that, the Rays land themselves in the World Series for the second time in franchise history. First, I'd like to get your thoughts from a broadcaster point of view on the season. Not traveling with the team must have had its challenges, but what challenges were you presented with having to call the majority of the games from the confines of the booth at the trap? Well, I mean, you know, once... When the, when the team was there and we were playing live games in front of us, it, it really wasn't a whole lot different than doing a game, uh, you know, normally. Uh, obviously, there were a couple of big moments in games where, uh, you know, your emotions getting ready to uh, call a big play. And uh, you're thinking, all right, not only do I have to, uh, you know, step up because it's a big play, but then a lot of times in the back of your mind, you know, you have to try and uh, get over the crowd noise. Well, uh, there was only the fill-in crowd noise, so you didn't have to worry about it too much. I think the awkward points came when there would be like a big double toward the end of the game, where uh, the game, you know, it was a walk-off, and you're you're expecting to hear this big crowd as you see the ball go by the diving first baseman down the right field line, and there really is just the, the subtle noise of the same kind of hum that they had going with the fake crowd noise, and then maybe you can hear the additional cheering of the players coming out of the dugout or uh, down the line, but uh, at, you know it, those were things that you had to kind of adjust to. But once the games got going and the actual game was in front of you, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, different to uh, calling a game at Tropicana Field when the games were there. Now, when they were on the monitors, obviously there were uh, uh, some challenges, and uh, I think we kind of uh, told our uh, powers that be that uh, you know we're, there, there's going to be mistakes, and as a matter of fact, we kind of jokingly at times told them. We automatically put four or five mistakes in play simply because we didn't want them to think that this should be the new normal. Uh, calling baseball off a monitor is different uh, than any other sport because, for the most part, uh, we, we are not a, uh, a symmetrical field. It's not square. It's not uh, rectangular like uh, or even oval, if you will, like a hockey arena that, uh, you know, again, a lot of what you see, uh, it, it, everything that you see is in the picture, and that's all you really need to see. With baseball, there's defensive alignments uh, when they're just showing the hitter and the batter, or uh, the hitter and the pitcher. Uh, you have to set that up. There's guys taking leads off bases that you can't see with uh, just the shot of the batter and the pitcher. Uh, there, there's guys uh, that are stopping halfway between bases sometimes. So we had a matrix of screens in front of us, but it still was a uh, challenge because a lot of times the, uh, the feed was so far that uh, it was really, really still hard to pick up who was where and uh, what they were doing. But uh, I think in talking to a number of other broadcasters, we all felt the same thing, that when we got done calling a baseball game that we were watching live, it was like uh, what we did during the regular seasons of yesteryear. When we got done calling a game off the monitor, uh, for the most part it was like a relief 
that the game was over and we hope we didn't mess it up too much. Now, I know you talked a little bit about it, the absence of fans. That wasn't quite noticeable. And it kind of created an odd scene, at least watching it on TV, because uh, most of us were not accustomed to it at all. What was that experience like calling a game with no fans in attendance live at the trap? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people right now are listening going, uh, well, it can't be that much of an adjustment because hardly anybody goes to games at Tropicana <laughs> Field. But uh, uh, So insert your joke there and uh, go ahead, folks, have at it. But at the end of the day, uh, when even when there's only seven, eight to 10,000 people at that ballpark, it still can get pretty loud. And so, you know, that presents its challenges inside an enclosed ballpark. And, you know, like I said, there were moments where when you're anticipating a big strikeout or you, you're anticipating – uh, you know, again, after a big hit, the crowd to kind of rise up and make more noise. It just wasn't there. And sometimes that was a little, uh, you know, kind of threw you off a little bit and uh, had to make some adjustments. But, you know, I still uh, tried to make my normal call. I had a lot of fans ask uh, before the season started, uh, are we still going to get the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, veracity, if you will, of some of my calls, the big strikeouts, the big homers, the big whatever. And uh, I said, I think you're going to get it. And, and I think for the most part, 99.9% of the time, if not all of it, uh, I can't remember one time where I didn't. Uh, I think I did come, you know, I broadcast the game like there were still people in the stands because uh, I, I wanted to broadcast the game the way that my fans have, accustomed, have grown accustomed to listening to our game. So, uh, like I said, once the games get going, uh, our focus isn't necessarily on who's sitting where and how they're, you know, what kind of noise is being made. Um, I'm a little different than some broadcasters. Uh, Andy wears uh, the two headphones where they cover completely cover both of, the, of his ears, and he really you know relies on the bat crack and a few of the other ambient noises that are provided during a uh, broadcast. I uh, like to only go with the one earpiece, so I can hear a little more of the uh, the, the crowd noise while it's going on. Uh, I'm not so uh, tunneled into what's just happening uh, on the, on the broadcast. So I did miss it. I, I, there's no doubt I missed it. I missed it when it happened, uh, at other ballparks too, when we were calling games off the monitors. Uh, but, um, at the end of the day, I, I don't believe it made any kind of an adjustment to the way that we broadcasted the game, because once the game got going, uh, your focus is really on, on the ball and the bat and uh, the players, as opposed to the people that are sitting in the stands. We're going to switch gears a little bit. So the 60-game season seemed from the start that it would be advantageous to the Rays with the formula that the team had with the front office going down to Kevin Cash, as we've seen in years past. What were your thoughts about this team going into 2020? And did you honestly think that the team could be capable of a championship run like they did have this season? Well, I I think after watching what this team did in 2019 – uh, you know, and, and winning 96 games and taking the uh, Houston Astros, arguably the second best team last year in, in baseball, to the break, I, I anticipated this team to be better. Um, I did. I, I thought that uh, going into spring training here and the you know, original spring training down in Port Charlotte in February and into March, that uh, this team was a team that after winning 96 games was probably one of the top I would say three or four teams in the American League. I thought that, uh, obviously, I thought the uh, Yankees were going to be a very, very good team. I thought that uh, Houston would still be a good team. Uh, was leaning toward Minnesota being another good team. And then, uh, you know, you kind of uh, figured out uh, who was going to follow suit with that. But I thought that the Rays would be one of the top uh, three or four teams in the American League and probably one of the top five teams 
than all the baseball. And so we, we nothing changed my mind when I saw this team come together in, in, in February and into March. And then when uh, we had to take the, the break because of the pandemic, and you started to look at the, the chances of maybe only playing a 75-game season or an 80-game season or a 70-game season, and as the numbers started to dwindle, uh, I really did feel that uh, the Rays were, if there's a team that is accustomed to having you do things outside of the box and a little bit different than anybody uh, than anybody else and can adjust to that quick, I thought it was the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, you know, we were the team that kind of sort of invented the opener. We've done a lot of things when it comes to shifting and we have a buy-in from not only our front office, obviously, because they're always looking for different ways to try to win baseball games, but it trickles down to the manager, Kevin Cash, to his coaching staff, and out of the players. So when they started to tell us about some of the adjustments that were going to be made during the 2020 season because of COVID, I thought that if there was a team ripe for success, uh, not only because they were good, but also because they can handle some of the things that uh, – are going to be thrown at them here in an awkward, irregular season, if you will. Uh, I, I definitely thought that the Rays would be a team that uh, maybe – I still didn't think we were going to be maybe better than the Yankees, but I, 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 like I said, I thought we were going to be one of the top three teams in the American League. And from the very, very beginning, there was no doubt, especially given the fact that when they said that this the, there was going to be eight teams in the postseason, uh, there was no doubt in my mind the Rays were going to be a postseason team. And then the playoff format, you look at no days off through – what was the first in basically three series, the wild card, the American League Division Series, and the American League Championship Series, that had to be tough on the players as well because you're taxing your bullpen. And then the fact that the series did go five games, seven games, although it was a best two out of three sweep in the Blue Jays series, it had to be tough on those guys and really trying to bring out the best baseball that they could in that condensed postseason schedule. No, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, again, the Rays are built on run prevention. And, um, you know, for, for better or for worse, it's a uh, Johnny Allstaff kind of a setup. Uh, you know, even going into this particular season, you know, you looked at uh, the Rays probably had as deep of a pitching staff as anybody in baseball, 1-15. to 15. And then as the season progressed – uh, we started losing guys left and right. Colin Pochet was a big part of the Rays uh, bullpen last year, and he went down right after uh, you know summer camp 2.0 started. We lost him. Uh, Yanni Chirinos was a guy that uh, was probably going to be one of our top four starters and could help uh, you know again limit the amount of times you have to go to your bullpen through a rotation. And yet he goes down and never really had that great of a, a regular set, an impact during the regular season. Uh, you know, Jalen Beeks was a guy that, you know, as you look back and you see what the, uh, the the Dodgers were able to do by being able to bring out guys who can throw multiple innings out of their bullpen. Uh, Jalen was shaping up to be that guy for the Tampa Bay Rays and uh, was, was just absolutely tremendous in a handful of appearances. And then he goes down. And uh, we lost Brennan McCarthy, who was not able to come back. Uh, because, or uh, 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 I shouldn't say that. I'm getting my name's messed up here but we lost a number of other guys with it with injuries because of uh, shoulder problems we lost elbow problems so next thing you know we lose six or seven guys that were supposed to be part of our our one through 15 that really was giving us an advantage against teams like the yankees against the uh, uh, teams like uh, the blue jays within our division and we just could not keep them healthy enough so now all of a sudden even you know blake snell was being slow played we had uh, charlie 
Morton being uh, shut down for a little while. So it was unfortunate that all that stuff kind of started piling up against the Rays, but somehow, some way, Kevin Caffrey was still able to hold things together. Our bullpen was in shambles, and uh, we get to the postseason, and it, it seemed to me that I think what, what we started to do once we got back from the break and got into uh, you know spring 2.0 or summer camp, whatever you want to call it, I think what the Rays really, really did a good job with is uh, saying, you know what, let's not worry about getting these guys ready for July 27th or whatever the case may be to get the season started. Let's not worry about getting these guys ready by September 1st. Let's make sure these guys are ready come playoff time. That's when the real season's going to start. And I think uh, when you started to see uh, some of these guys really start looking toward that particular start line or start finish line, if you will, that, that's when I, th- I think that uh, allowed us to kind of get off to the pretty good start that we did. We took out a very talented but a young Blue Jays team that, uh, you know, again, <clears throat> there, there aren't any secrets when you're playing uh, teams that you see as many times as we have during the regular season already over the last couple of years. And I thought that, uh, you know, again, the Rays did a real, real good job of being able to slow them down for a team that does not uh, – uh, you know, do a lot of chase, but it seemed like, the, again, the lineup got tougher and tougher each and every round. And then we go to the next round, we're playing the Yankees, and all of a sudden you got another veteran group that doesn't do a lot of chasing, and they were getting, uh, you know, Blake Snell out of the ball game maybe a little bit sooner uh, than we had anticipated. Uh, Tyler Glass now uh, had maybe a little more trouble, you know, going deeper into the games because they don't chase that curveball in the dirt as much. So, uh, they extended us, and, and, and that's why I think in that fifth game, it was interesting to watch Kevin Cash operate the way he did, which he brought Nick Anderson in the game early, but uh, did something with Nick that he hadn't done a whole lot of before, and that's go multiple, multiple innings. And I think from that point on, <clears throat> it seemed like you know, the Rays were kind of paying for that moment because our bullpen wasn't quite as uh, shut down uh, from game five of the ALDS through the end of the season. And so you talk about how the rounds got tougher, but you're facing the Yankees in that second round, which everybody, except I think it'll, I think majority of people outside of Tampa Bay picking the Yankees to make it to the World Series, the Rays end up, quote, upset them. And it was a sweet feeling to have, but then you face the Astros. But going back to that Yankees series, Mike Brosseau hit one of the most memorable home runs I think in the postseason for the Rays, that was an amazing moment of an unknown guy, scripted how the Rays are, a bunch of guys who aren't household names, hitting a home run against an established closer, perennial all-star, Roldis Chapman. And with the stuff that happened there in the po- towards the end of the regular season, how great of a narrative it was for Brosseau to hit that home run and send the Rays on their way to the ALCS? Uh, I mean, you couldn't have scripted it any better if you're a Rays fan, or for that matter, if you're an underdog fan. Uh, you know, you're making your way through game number five. Uh, the Rays are doing whatever they can to try to hang with the Yankees on that particular day and try and solve uh, Garrett Cole, which has also been a narrative for this team over the last uh, couple of years where they've been able to get to Garrett a little bit during the regular season but can't touch him in the postseason. And so... Uh, the Yankees thought that they had this all figured out, that uh, somehow all they needed to do after winning game one was to try to get this to a game five if they could, and uh, they did. And they took an early one nothing lead, uh, which, uh, again, was kind of unfortunate. But then we had the opposite field home run by Meadows that, uh, you know, 
Judge, or I should say Aaron Judge tried to go up and get and kind of stuffed himself, and you start to think, all right, well, maybe the uh, the fact that uh, they're playing in a ballpark that they're not all familiar with uh, kind of came back to haunt him a little bit to tie the game. And then you get a little bit later on in the game, and here we are in the eighth inning, and Mike Rosso is up against the Rolvis Chapman, and you're thinking to yourself, come on. This is this is just too much. I mean, to ask this young kid to be able to answer uh, a lot of things here after what happened toward the, at the beginning of September when uh, you know Aroldis Chapman not only did he buzz the tower at 101, but he had done it to two previous guys in that uh, same inning as well on September 1st or right thereabouts, and then uh, uh, you know was able to evade suspension for by some ta- technicalities. Uh, that you know wasn't able to didn't have to serve his three games during the regular season. Uh, it would just be kind of the ultimate comeuppance uh, to be able to come back and bite this guy in the behind. So the at bat starts rather quietly, and the next thing you know, uh, Mikey just starts doing some nice things where he starts spoiling off a couple of pitches. Looked like he was on a couple of pitches, and then uh, drills that ball into the seats in left center field for uh, arguably one of the biggest homers in race history. No question, one of the biggest homers uh, in his history. I can't believe there would be one any bigger. And uh, as Andy Freed said during the call, it was indeed sweet justice uh, for a kid to, to have a ball buzzed his uh, tower a little over a month and a half before that to be able to come back against the same guy in such a crucial situation to be able to hit that uh, home run to give his team the lead and ultimately the uh, series win. It doesn't get any better than that. Uh, you still kind of get goosebumps when you think back about it. And uh, and then the, the way he handled it was such class, uh, you know, afterward, where uh, once again, it seemed like there were a lot of people trying to get him to take the bait to say how, you know, you want, you almost want to say, I know I wanted to say to a Roldis Chapman, take that and uh, add a few other verbs and adjectives to that afterward. <laughs> but uh, Mikey was very, very classy about it. He knew that, uh, again, uh, it, was a, it was a big hit. It was a big moment. But the Rays still had some uh, things that they had to take care of. Because of that home run, they had that opportunity. Then you look at the next round after that. The Astros series, which Tampa Bay had them on the ropes, up three games to none. And then the Astros claw back into that series to force a game seven. When when you're in the, I mean, for me watching the game, and I can imagine you in the booth, because I believe you guys got, did you guys get to travel out there for that second we did. We were in San Diego for that. Yes, correct. So traveling out there, watching the series, how it progressed and how the Rays had built up that three games to none lead, you just have to think, this is going to be in the bag for the Rays easy. And then kind of take me through what you started feeling watching that game four, that game five, that game six. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm going to go back to the first three games. Uh you know, we walked out of the ballpark after each of the first three games, Andy Fried and I, uh, saying to ourselves, we could easily be 0-1 right now. We could easily be 0-2 right now. We could easily be 0-3 right now. I mean, uh, in each of those first three games, we did what good teams are supposed to do. We took advantage of Houston Astros' mistakes and made them pay for it. But, uh, you know, again, they were very, very awkward mistakes. Uh, they were uh, mistakes made by... Uh, you know, you know, plays where you expected that they were going to make. And, you know, when, when you see Altuve throwing one hoppers uh, into a second base or, or, you know, into first base and doing what he did, this guy's uh, one of the best players going in the game of baseball. And he had the yips for a few games. And thankfully for us, uh, you know, it allowed us to, to be able to do some things that uh, and score some runs that we weren't doing on our own. I mean, our offense had kind of gone into hibernation since game three of the American League Division Series. And 
you know, in game one uh, and game two, both in the ALCSs, uh, we probably don't score without Altuve errors. And if we don't score without those Altuve errors, we probably walk out of those two ball games down 0-2 because, uh, like I said to Andy, after the first two games, we were outpitched. We our starting pitching was not as good as the Houston Astros starting pitching on those particular days. Their offense was not uh, our offense was not as good as the Astros' offense on those particular days. But the biggest difference maker for both of uh, both of those games were our, was the defense. The Astros didn't make a couple of plays. It came back to haunt them. And the Rays, and especially in the first three games, it seemed like we had the right guy at the right point on the right side of the defense uh, after every big hit or every line drive. And uh, So to, to be up 3-0, it wasn't like I thought that this series was in the bag far from it. As a matter of fact, I was very, very uh, fortunate thinking that uh, with the way that we had been you know, swinging the bats that we are fortunate to be up three games to nothing. So then when we lost game four, really wasn't that much of a surprise, uh, you know, because, again, we just hadn't been uh, hitting as well as we needed to hit to beat a team of the uh, the Oak of the Houston Astros. And so now it's 3-1, then it becomes 3-2, and then it becomes 3-3, three three, and you're thinking, all right, well, uh, the only way we're going to get out of here is if we hit. And right now, the other thing, too, is, is to, uh, to this day, I should still send a thank you letter to Dusty Baker because uh, to this day, I do not know why. Dusty Baker still allowed his pitchers to throw to Randy Orozarena. Because if Randy Orozarena is not allowed to hit in Game 7, uh, we're probably not talking about a raised visit to the World Series. But for whatever reason, Dusty Baker felt that his pitchers could still get Randy Orozarena out. I'm glad that he felt that way because uh, it's the only reason why the Rays went to the World Series. Uh, he was a special guy throughout this entire postseason. Now that brings me to my next point. Randy Orozarena... The Rays had arguably the biggest star of the postseason with Randy Rosarena, what he did, breaking quite a few records and as a rookie in postseason play. And just watching Randy Rosarena this season, he had to deal with a lot of the COVID protocols and then burst on the scene here in the postseason. It was truly remarkable to watch Randy Rosarena at the plate looking like a seasoned veteran in postseason baseball. You know, watching him from the beginning of regular spring training, hadn't heard much about him. Uh, it was about, you know, obviously uh, when we're getting ready for the, the 2020 season, Rays make a trade. Matthew Libertor, a young prospect that, uh, you know, the Rays had a lot of very, very high hopes on, spent uh, a lot of money to sign him out of high school. And then when I heard we were trading him to the St. Louis Cardinals, it was kind of shocking because that's uh, – not something that we usually do. We don't trade young pitching phenoms. And uh, it was to the Cardinals, but I still hadn't heard many names. And it was funny. I was out walking my dog on that particular day, and there's a neighbor down the street uh, from my house who's a huge baseball fan, but also a huge Cardinal fan. And uh, he had heard the rumor, and he kind of stopped me and asked me if I had heard any of any players. And I said, honestly, I have not. And he mentioned a handful of them, including Randy Rosarena. He said, if you guys get this guy, He's a pretty impressive player. Now, nobody saw what happened in the postseason coming. But here we go. We get Randy Rosarena and Jose Martinez, among others. And next thing you know, spring training comes. And watching this kid play, and I, both Andy and I felt at the time that he might have been the most exciting player that we saw during the spring. He did some different things uh, offensively at the plate, on the bases he could run. He could go get it in the outfield. Kind of reminded me a little bit at that particular time of a right-handed uh, version of Carl Crawford and would say that a couple of times during uh, spring training. And then 
the COVID hits and we, we don't see him when we first get back. We find out that he had the COVID and he had to kind of uh, deal with things. And then when he goes down to our alternate camp in Port Charlotte, start asking questions about him because, you know, you're thinking, all right, it'd be nice to have a, a right-handed bat in this lineup that could be fairly consistent in his attack. And they said, well, he's doing some nice things down there. He's hitting doubles, but, uh, you know, he's not quite ready to come up yet. So when they do bring him up, uh, Kevin Cash, our manager, throws BP on a daily basis to a, a couple of different groups. And he was telling us about him, and he said, you know what, he does some things with the bat that is much different than anybody else that we have. He's got some of the quickest hands of anybody he's ever dealt with. He said, I've been trying to jam him during batting practice, and I can't because he can bring his hands and move his hands as quick as anybody we have, and he avoids getting jammed as well as anybody we have. So now all of a sudden he gets off to a real good start during the uh, regular season for about a week, and then he gets uh, a little jumpy at the plate. He goes about two or three weeks where he doesn't hit a whole lot of anything because he's swinging at everything. And, uh, you know, we saw him then calm down once the postseason started. There's no way anybody saw a 10-home run postseason coming. Randy and Rosarin. It, it, it just, you know, there was there weren't there weren't that many signs, but uh, you know, he, he kept on doing it. He did it with fastballs. He did it with sliders. He did it with curveballs and changeups. Uh, like I said, I was just thankful that teams decided that they still wanted to continue to pitch to this guy because of uh, all the damage that he's been doing while everybody else was relatively quiet. And on top of that, between Brasso and then Rosarena, there were great stories and. Which brings me up to the Game 4 of the World Series, which was, I think, one of the best World Series games I've ever seen in terms of drama. I think going back to, and I bring up 2017, of course, there's a lot of um, off-the-field stuff that comes with that. But that 2017 game, it was back and forth between the Dodgers and the Astros. But the emotions that you had to feel, especially as a Rays fan... You go down three to one in the series. If you lose that game, it is a must win for the Rays to tie the series up at two games apiece. And the most unlikeliest of heroes, again, not a lot of household names for the Rays, a guy, Brett Phillips, who grew up, I believe, in the Seminole area, comes up with another big hit, possibly one of the biggest hits in Rays history in the World Series. You know, it, it was just the, the game was like a heavyweight matchup in the beginning. I mean, uh, but a movie type heavyweight matchup because uh, there wasn't. Uh, it was more like a Rocky movie kind of thing where there was just haymaker after haymaker being thrown by both sides throughout. Uh, you know the, the game. I mean, you, you sit there and you. you the, the thing about the, the the Dodgers and the Rays on that particular day was the fact that this was a, a game in which we were down, as you said, two games to one. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, we've got to be able to come back here and uh, somehow, some way, even the series up. Because if we don't, uh, it's going to be tough sledding for the Rays the rest of the way. And so the Dodgers score a first inning run again off of uh, Ryan Yarbrough. And it stays uh, one nothing for a couple of innings. Then they take a 2 nothing lead, and we start wondering, right, where's our offense going to come from? And then we finally started to chip away. But our problem throughout this entire game was it seemed like every time the Rays would score a run, the Dodgers had an answer, and that's exactly what happened. So for uh, whatever stretch that was, we were not, you know, we, we were able to take uh, tie the game or get to within a run, then they added a run. And I think Brandon Lau hit the home run to take a 5-4 lead, but then the Dodgers came right back and scored a couple more runs to take the lead. And I started thinking to ourselves, well, maybe the only way we're going to win this game is uh, by batting last. And uh, so here we go. We go into the, uh, the late stages of the game, and 
and like I said, our bullpen was starting to show signs of uh, fatigue. Uh, you know, every bullpen guy, our big boys came in, Castillo, Fairbanks, Nick Anderson, they just could not put a zero up. And uh, next thing you know, we get to the ninth inning, and you start thinking, all right, well, you know, how are we going to get this done here? And the, the funny thing about it was on that particular game, Dan Johnson threw out the ceremonial first pitch virtually. And we were all kind of talking about how maybe we could use a Dan Johnson moment. Uh, Dan Johnson had some incredible moments in his time with the Tampa Bay Rays. He, he got brought up from AAA Durham back in 2008 in a uh, late September game against the Boston Red Sox. He was supposed to be in the starting lineup, but couldn't make it to the ballpark in time. So now he's coming up and he's pinch hitting in the ninth inning against Jonathan Papelbon. And it turns out that we had found out later on that he had been over his last 20-something pinch hitting and yet takes Jonathan Papelbon deep to the to the bullpen. And the Rays figure out a way to win their first game in Fenway that particular year, partly because of the home run, the pinch at homer by Dan Johnson. And, uh, you know, then we had game 162 a few years later. And, and you know, everybody loves to talk about the Evan Longoria home run that put him into the wild card. But it was the two-strike, uh, two-out hit by Dan Johnson that uh, tied the ball game up to allow the game to go into the uh, end extra innings where Evan would ultimately win it. So, you know, here we are now. There's, uh, you know, the, the inning's going on. There's a Kiermaier's aboard. Uh, he reaches, and then a Rosarina's coming up, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way they're pitching to this guy, not with Brett Phillips batting behind him. And uh, as it turned out, that, that's exactly what happened. Credit to uh, Randy. He didn't expand his zone. He took the walk. And now here's Brett Phillips coming up with uh, a couple of men aboard and a chance to uh, tie the game with a base hit and uh, give the Rays the lead with any kind of an extra base hit. I know it was asking a lot of a guy that wasn't even on the roster for the LCS. Uh, it was, you know, kind of really a bit player at best uh, toward the end of the regular season when the Rays figured, you know what, he's an elite defender. We can bring him in to help, uh, you know, you know, shut things down defensively, but has not been at all a very good hitter in his short time in the big leagues. And uh, gets to, uh, takes a strike, takes another strike that looked to me like a ball. And I'm thinking this poor guy is a local kid and he's just not going to be able to get a big hit to help his team out. And uh, for whatever reason, though, I said right before it happened, I said, maybe we don't need a miracle. We just need a base hit. We don't need a miracle. We just need a base hit. Maybe we got one dance. Maybe we do have a dance Johnson moment uh, in him. And sure enough, he got the base hit and all kinds of things just start happening when he puts the ball in play. I'm watching Kiermaier. I didn't even notice uh, Chris Taylor kick the ball. Uh, the way that he did. And then I'm watching Rosarena come around third, and I'm thinking, hey, nice send by Rodney Linares because it's going to be close, but I feel like uh, you know he, he's going to be able to beat it out, Rosarena is. And then he falls down, and I'm thinking, and I'm standing up now. I'm not, Andy's calling the play, and I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? This is why we're going to go to extra innings. And then they make their relay to the plate, and they fan on the throw at the plate. Rosarena gets back up, plops on home plate, and uh, all Bedlam breaks loose. It, it, it obviously was one of the craziest endings to any kind of a baseball game, but to add the World Series to the equation is incredible. And, uh, you know, Andy and I, usually if you listen to our broadcast, we, we don't ever use the word unbelievable. We think it's one of the most overused phrases going in sports. And uh, when this was all over, I looked at Andy and I said, you know what, I know there's a word that both you and I avoid at all costs. But what happened today just might fit that particular word and he said yep say it it was unbelievable and uh, i don't think anybody saw what happened happen uh coming 
And uh, so happy for Brett Phillips, one of the nicest guys you're going to run into. And uh, just happy that, uh, you know, again, ultimately we came up a little bit short, but uh, that finish on that Saturday night will go down to history as one of the craziest endings to a Major League Baseball game. And the Rays were on the top of that crazy ending. Yeah, I was sitting next to my dad watching the game down here, and I just remember the look on his face when that, because he can't get up and jump up around with him having a Lou Gehrig's disease, and the smile that crept over his face as soon as that ball kicked away from Chris Taylor, and then the slip and fall, and just how the play went, and he just turned to me, and he just said one word, wow. And I, we were still trying to process after Rosarena had tapped the home plate a couple of times, we were still trying to process what just happened. And there's Brett Phillips running around in the outfield, and it was so magical just to see that. And I really thought after that game that the series was going to shift in Tampa's favor. And the next thing I want to bring up, and I know it's been a topic of discussion as soon as it happened, the decision to pull Blake Snell in Game 6. Wanted to get your thoughts on it, if you agree or disagree with Cash's decision, Paul Blake Snell, when he was mowing through the order and had just given up a single to center. I, 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 you know, at the time, both Andy and I mentioned it on the air that we don't agree with the move. We didn't agree with the move when he took Charlie Mort out of the ballgame in game seven of the ALCS. Uh, but the, at the same time, what we did say and what we continue to say is that that is the way that Kevin Cash not only just managed here during the 2020 postseason, but he managed that way during the 2020 regular season. And part of the reason why this team went from 90 wins to 96 wins to getting to the World Series here in 2020 is the consistency by which Kevin Cash manages games. His players uh, buy into that. They understand that. And when you start to make panic moves, your, your players start to look over their shoulders and start wondering what's going on. Now, um, with that being said, uh, all things that uh, were at hand, I, I, I don't make that move. But I continue to re- try to reiterate to everybody is that there were no guarantees that we were going to shut out a Los Angeles Dodgers team that had not been shut out all season long. Uh, Blake Snell was on his game. There's no doubt about that. But we have also watched Blake Snell over the years be on his game and then one pitch later, which he did a lot here in 2020, not be on top of his game because he gave up a home run. And um, I, I think at that particular time, Kevin Cash felt that uh, this was a move that he had made consistently throughout 2020 and throughout the playoffs. But I think ultimately, too, is that by making that move as much as he did, I think uh, you know our, our, our bullpen fuel light was, uh, was flashing. Uh, Nick Anderson was not the same guy that he was throughout the uh, 2019 season and into the beginning most of the 2020 season. His swing and miss rate had gone way, way down. Here was a guy that, uh, you know, didn't walk anybody and yet was falling behind hitters consistently 2-0 and and 3-1 and a lot more recently. And I think at that particular time, too, was in the midst of giving up runs in seven consecutive outings. So it's it's a lot easier to look look back in hindsight and say that Kevin made a mistake. Um, I, I did not like the move at the beginning. I, to me, at that particular time, with everything that was going on, I, I'm leaving the ball in, in Blake's hands. Uh, but I will continue to say that the biggest reason why the Rays uh, lost that game and, and did not advance to Game 7 it was not because of one pitch thrown by Nick Anderson. It was because our offense was not very, very good. And our offense was uh, too, miss, too much miss and not enough hit 
over these last uh, few weeks. And uh, you're not going to beat the Dodgers one nothing. We need if our offense had given us maybe even two or three runs leading up to that particular inning. Blake Snell probably stays in the ball game. So uh, I, I can't sit here. I'm not going to blame Kevin Cash for the Rays not being the 2020 World Series champs. Uh, this was a total team effort to get there, and it was a team effort as to why they came up a little bit short. But it, it is a it is a move that Kevin has made consistently uh, throughout his uh, career. And like I said, it's the reason why the Rays were able to get to 90 wins in 2018, 96 wins in 19, and then win 40 of 60 games last year. Uh, it's because of the consistency of the way he manages the game. And um, I, I'm wondering going forward if that might change a little bit, though, because uh, I, I don't, you know, I, but it's also the way the Dodgers play the game. I mean, the, the day before in game five, Dave Roberts did the same thing with Clayton Kershaw. Uh, nobody saw Clayton Kershaw showing any signs of weakness after he got out of the fourth inning of a little bit of a mess. And uh, two batters in, two pitches in, he takes them out of the game. It's just that their bullpen guy, did a little bit better job than our bullpen guy. And their offense was probably a little better than our offense too. And I like how Kevin Cash, after the game, he comes out, he stands by his decision, and it shows he, he believes in what works. And the guy has been a candidate for manager of the year many years, and he's, he is one of the game's best managers in, in the new school of thinking in baseball. Well, but and, I, you know, and again, I think that it's something that we're going to have to take a long look at. Now, had we been healthy – and had we uh, had our full complement of bullpen guys, like I said, I was kind of going through uh, some of the names uh, earlier, and you know, I was couldn't. Uh, I think I said Brendan McCarthy. I meant Brendan McKay, as uh, I have a senior moment here. But Brendan McKay <laughs> would have been another guy, along with uh, you know, like I said, Jalen Beeks, that we probably could have went to for uh, three, you know, two or three innings of a guy coming out throwing 97 to 98 miles an hour uh, to counter some of the the guys that, like I said, the Dodgers were able to do against us. Um, it's just that the, we, we, you need to score more than just one run. You put an incredible amount of uh, pressure on your pitching staff and on your defense when your offense can only score one run. And that one run continued to only be Randy or Rosarena. Uh, we needed more uh, consistent play out of you know a number of players. As I've said many, many times, when you get to that stage, your best players need to be your best players. When you look at the Dodgers across the way, their best players were their best players. Corey Seager turned out to be the MVP. Justin Turner, before he got COVID, had a, a few big hits for them. Uh, Cody Bellinger had some big hits for them as well. You go up and down the top part of their lineup, and uh, the top part of their lineup was able to do something consistently every single game, it seemed. You had Betts, Seager, Turner, Muncie Smith, Bellinger. I mean, it just didn't stop. Uh, whereas you look at our the, the Rays lineup, and you look at the top of our lineup, and you know, Yandi, he had a moment maybe, or did he? I don't know. Uh, you, you think about the, you know, Brandon Lau, he had a moment or two. Austin Meadows maybe had a moment. Randy Rosarena, the only real, real consistent guy and threat in the lineup on a, on a nightly basis. Manuel Margot had moments. So, you know, it was tough to counter the consistency of the Dodgers with the moments of the Rays. Now that the season's over, what are your thoughts on? 2021 with the Tampa Bay Rays after such a historic run for them in 2020. Well, you know, we've got some uh, eyes to dot and T's to cross here. We've got to figure out, uh, it always, always starts with run prevention with the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, you look at our pitching staff and, and going forward with that, that, that staff that was part of the whole process here in 2020, 
Uh, Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, Tyler Glassnow with a big three. Uh, you, you know Blake Snell and Tyler Glassnow are going to be back, and you hope that they're better in uh, certain areas than they were a year ago. They they are top echelon type pitchers to begin with, but I still think both of them have some room for improvement to become you know elite elite type major league pitchers. Uh, is Charlie Morton going to come back? Uh, we've already opted out of his uh, uh, contract, but we're hoping that maybe we can sign him to a new deal that would bring him back and uh, provide a little bit of a buffer there in the middle part of the rotation. And then you start wondering, all right, well, are we going to have to go out and get another arm? We've got a number of guys, as I said, and you start looking at uh, the situation with the Rays and um, guys who were injured throughout last year. You know, we, we, we lost a handful of guys that aren't going to probably be able to come back next year. O'Shea with an elbow injury will not come back. Uh, Beeks will not be back in 2021, I don't believe. Uh, Brendan McKay is a guy that maybe I would think we'd see hopefully by the All-Star break. Uh, he had a shoulder situation that uh, had to have surgery with, and, and he's a guy that is going to be uh, out for a while. But you always wonder about these guys when they come back after injury, are they going to be – uh, the same because they, they rehab. They didn't work out. They rehab to get back uh, to where they're at. So um, the, the other guys that you start, Yanni Chirinos won't be there. So we've got some holes to fill in our uh, rotation. We've got holes to fill in the bullpen. And then offensively, uh, most of the core should be back. I mean, Mike Zanino is one of the guys that we didn't offer a contract to, but, um, you know, you, we may or may not to reach out to him to come back at a lesser uh, pay rate than what he got here in 2020. But, you know, you're looking at this lineup right now and you're thinking, all right, can Yandy uh, bounce back? And, and can he ever play a full season? The guy's had some injuries. Uh, you're, you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, Austin Meadows, a guy that a year ago looked like he was going to be an all-star. And then he got COVID and just never can get himself into real good shape. Brandon Lau had some real high highs, but he also had some very, very low lows. Uh, you start thinking about, all right, what will Randy Rosarina do? on a, a, a now a consistent basis where everybody knows who he is. There's no more uh, sneaking around Randy Rosarena anymore. G-Mon Choi, can he put together a full season? Uh, will we bring Kevin Kiermeyer back? Because he's going to start to get expensive. Um, you know, and, and then you start thinking about some of the young guys. Obviously, everybody wants to know about Wander Franco. Will he be back? And will uh, he be, or will he be a guy that we'll see at the beginning of the year? Is he a guy that We'll uh, have to wait a little while on. Who knows? I mean, uh, talk to some people who saw him work out with the team this year who said that if he was on our team right now, he would probably be one of our best defensive players in the infield and would probably bat anywhere from one to two or three in the lineup. So uh, they're expecting big things out of him. And I forgot Willie Adamas. Uh, Willie had a very, very quiet postseason offensively but was sensational defensively. But how will he bounce back offensively? So um, this team should be another will, will be a good team come 2021. Uh, but I think again, a question mark is going to be about pitching depth uh, because we've got a handful of guys who are going to be on the IL who probably won't be available. So we have to go out and uh, you know again maybe add some arms from other organizations, and then we've got a couple of young guys where the you know Josh Fleming did some nice things last year, but is he more of a bottom of the rotation kind of guy? Brett Honeywell's a guy that we've been talking about for the past three or four years. It just can never seem to keep healthy. Uh, but, it, you know, they say when he's on, he's as good as any young pitcher that's out there. So this team shouldn't be going anywhere. Uh, I, I, I look at 2021 as a team, uh, a race team that will com- you know, compete for the American League East. It's not getting any easier. The Blue Jays show that the, they're ready to, to grow. The Red Sox get Alex Cora back, so there's some new 
uh, vim and vigor with that particular team. The Yankees are the Yankees, so uh, it, it's it's not going to be easy. But I would anticipate uh, again, uh, the Rays aren't going anywhere. This this window is open, and it's going to be open for a couple, two or three years for this team to do some damage in the American League East, and for that matter, in all of baseball. Dave, thank you for coming on the show, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk with me. Stay safe out there, and hopefully the Rays can make another run for a world championship next season. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, and anytime. I look forward to doing it uh, with you at any time. Appreciate it. With that, we have reached the end of the second part of the third episode of Sheer Sports. I would like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to my podcast. Make sure to follow at Sheer underscore sports on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook for all information and content regarding Sheer Sports. Have a great day and I'll see you next week on Sheer Sports.